Hey, first of all, I'd like to thank everyone who's downloaded, listened, and been all-around supportive so far. This is a learning process, and a lot of you have been giving me exceptionally good advice, which I find invaluable. I'm working on getting the social media presence set up, so if you haven't already followed us on Twitter or Facebook, definitely look for us there under Goddessy Podcast. And if you like what you hear, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere fine podcasts are sold, and just get the word out to someone in your life who likes this kind of weird. Hopefully this podcast can offer some kind of peaceful distraction in this otherwise chaotic time. Now, where were we? Ah yes, previously on Goddessy. A young boy discovers the history of Ireland, and that he has a part to play in the great destiny of his people, the Tuatha Dé Danann. Yet despite these revelations, Lou still seeks answers as to who he truly is, and turns to the only person who can provide them. Welcome to Goddessy. Episode 2, The Princess in the Tower. He brought the hammer down upon the heated bronze, watching it bend to his will. There was a kind of peace found in this work, even Lou had to admit it. Though the work was hard and the burns hardly worth the effort, he was good at it. His uncle experimented with new techniques daily, given what seemed like an unlimited supply of bronze and other ores to explore, and all of it he taught to Lou. He knew how to extract the right minerals and brush away the slag, how to keep the heat going and how to properly manage it, keeping it at just the right temperature to smelt and forge the bronze. It was said the forge of Gavita was the greatest of forges on the island, and both Firbolg and Tuatha Dé Danann paid handsomely for his weapons. For it was said no weapon could withstand the power of a Fomorian, lest it be enchanted. And perhaps there was something to that. Kavita put a little of his magic into each of the weapons he forged. Pull it out, boy, and watch carefully. Hanging the hammer beside the post, Lou took the tongs and removed the spearhead, holding it tight. Kavita removed his gloves and cracked his hairy knuckles, covered in calluses and burns. Upon each finger was a different symbol a line-based series of glyphs Lou could not read but felt he understood. They were themselves an enchantment to protect him. Kavita took a chisel and began to work on the spearhead, letting his hands touch the glowing bronze from time to time. Never once did it burn him. A week had passed since the Queen of the Fearbulk had taken Lou out to the land between the lakes. The rage still dwelled within him, but he had waited. He could not ask his uncle in anger about what she had said. Gavita was stern, harsher than she was, less logical. Lou had to work with him like precious metal, get in his good graces, and so, for the last week, Lou had worked non-stop at the smithery with his uncle, the master smith of the isle. He could not recall a time his muscles were so sore. Place it in the water and leave it to cool now. Lou did as he was bade and submerged the bronze in water, steam shooting out from the heated metal, and after a moment he returned, placing it on a surface near the bellowing forge. The bronze was marked at its center, a series of circles with glyphs marking the lines. What are those markings, uncle? he asked, curious. Hmm? We call them Ogum. They're the marks of our people, how we record information kept safe by the druids. It was created by Ogma, our bravest warrior, in a moment of inspiration. He taught it to the Dagda, who has since taught it to many. 
Circles mark our tombs, our standing stones, and our places of power. When we add additional marks, it can imbue them with knowledge, a kind of magic all its own. This Lou knew, though not the exact details. He did not know how to use them or make them, and something told him that his uncle was not the right person to tell him. His magic was different from the Queen's. It was a magic of knowing rather than a magic of being, one made from learning, the other deep from the heart of one's soul. Both had their place, Lu knew. And we use them to keep our weapons safe from the Fomorians? There Gavita's glance hardened. Who told you that, boy? Lu felt the hairs on the back of his neck stiffen. The sons of Yokid. I was spying on them. No good will come of that. But yes, only my weapons can withstand their power, lest it be made of sterner metals or enchanted at its making. He changed subject, sensing Lou's plan. What's on your mind? Don't mince words, boy. So he didn't. Who am I? What is my purpose, uncle? And why are we here? Why are we hiding? Kavita regarded him carefully, taking in his expressions, making him suddenly aware of the tenseness he wore on his brow, of the stiffness of his chin as he resisted swallowing. She spoke to you, didn't she? Damn that woman. She told you. Lou shook his head. She told me that we come from the four cities and that we will one day take possession of the land, that our king is Nuwada, our druid is the Dagda, and that the Phantom Queen, Lord of Battle, came with us to this place. She told me of the sovereign queens led by Ira, whose land this is, and she told me about the Fomorians. But nothing else? He paused, thinking. She told me I would be at the center of the conflict between our people and the Fomorians. Gavita sighed. A pox on that woman and her entire house. There are ways of doing this sort of thing. But you were always going to find out eventually. Better sooner than later, for no good can come of falsehood and hidden truths. So, where do you want me to begin? Lou almost smiled. I imagine the beginning is best. So we came by ship, led by the Dagda and his wisdom and we bore with us three of our four relics we count as sacred, from Phalius, the Stone of Fall, which marks the true king of Ireland with a cry, the Sword of Light, pure enough to slay gods, and the Dagda's cauldron of plenty, able to feast an entire army and satisfy them to the last. We landed there and were met by the forces of Iokid, who was not yet high king of the Firbolg. He gifted us land in Connick, and we made do with what we could, fishing and trading for wheat. For in the four cities, we never did learn to farm. And so, here we are. Our herds multiplied, and among them was the Gloss Gatlin, who bore such an abundance of milk that all wished to possess her. She belonged to a man named Kean, called the Stammerer. Not for a stammer, but for the cadence of his speech. A trickster and con man, there never was so beguiling as Kean. Yet once upon a time there was no peace between the Fomorians and the Tuatha Dé Danann, and so Nuwada sought peace between them. A marriage was arranged, and Kian was offered as groom. Balor of the Evil Eye, king of the Fomorians, offered his daughter Ethnu as bride. The date was set. Yet Balor desired the Gloss Gavlin, for with it he could feed his men. He put no stock in peace, and already began plotting against us, so one day... As Kean went out to do his business, he left the gloss gavlin in the care of his brother. 
Tired as he was from his gallivanting the night before, Kean's brother wished for a nap, but knew the importance of the herd. So, when a small child, red of hair, appeared to him and offered to take the herd, he could not resist. So Kean's brother napped, thinking nothing of what he'd done. When he awoke, he found the green fields burned to ash, the air almost as poison. The bodies of the herds were strewn about, many half-eaten and the rest half-cremated. There before him stood a giant, holding the gloss gavelin, moaning in his grip. Kian's brother knew in an instant who stood before him, Balor of the evil eye, his eye once more covered. Smiling with a snarling, toothy grin, Balor took the youth by his shirt and effortlessly lifted him up a fair twenty feet. I thank you for your hospitality, son of Danu. By your wording, you freely gave me the herd, and now the gloss gablin is mine by right. Take it before your king. Beg for it back, wee man. But even your silver-tongued Dagda will know the cow is mine. I give you your life. Take vengeance against me, and it will be war. Thus, he dropped Kian's brother and strode away. Kian was furious when he heard, as much as his brother as was his bride-to-be's father. He consulted the king, yet there was nothing he could do, nor did the Dagda offer any solace for him. But Kian had a secret. He consorted with the fair folk, the she who live beneath the mounds and dwell in Tirnanog, the isle in the west. He summoned to him a fairy woman named Birog, a thing of air and wind, and with her began to plot for the fair folk know many secrets. Balor held in his court a wise woman who advised him to hide his daughter away in a tower. Knowing he could not steal back the gloss gavelin, for Balor was quick-witted, Kian elected to meet his bride-to-be. So, he had Bira carry him off to the Isle of Turai, where stood a tall black tower crafted from the stones. Through an open window she carried him, and with blade in hand, Kian began moving through the halls there, avoiding servants and guards, until he found what must be the Fomorian princess's room. Dark and damp it was, a prison unlike any other he had visited, smelling of rotten fish and sulfur. Opening the door, he expected to find filth and famine there. What he found shocked him. The room smelled of summer in the West Country, like rain on stone and burning birch. There was nothing but pleasantness there, in the softness of that dark room. And there, in the center of it all, was a bed of red cloth and a woman atop it, playing a lyre. Never had Kian seen anything, heard anything, so beautiful in his life. "'Who do you presume to be, just barging into my room like this?' she asked him, her tone belittling. It was then that he began to stammer for the first time in his life, fulfilling his name. She laughed. Close the door behind you. The smell is hard to keep at bay. He did as he was bade and sat down upon the workstone floor. She played for him, filling the room with a sound he had never heard. Though the poets of the Tuatha de Danan and the singers all played well, they did not play with such beautiful sadness or speed. She had precision sharp nails that knew how each pluck would reverberate off the dark stone walls. Soon there was nothing but her playing, and Kian was entranced. She did not stop playing, but spoke still. 
You're not one of my father's servants, are you? She said, her tone still forthright. I am not, replied Kian, finding himself mired by honesty. Then you must be an intruder, and I should call out for my guards, she said, giving him an indignant grin. Her tune changed key to a lower register. Aye, you could, said Kian, smiling. But then who would enjoy your song? She smiled and played for a bit, letting the song fall between them. There was a sweetness in it, and Kian, a bitter sweetness. He had not expected to find Ethnu so different from the cruelty of her father. Why does he keep you here, locked away from the world? She did not look at him, but kept her smile. My father's soothsayer told him that should he ever have a grandson, he would have met his doom, for his grandson would kill him and bring ruin to the Fomorians. So he locked away his only daughter in a tower without doors, that she may never bear a child. Kian squinted. And yet he has betrothed you to the Tuatha Dé Danann. Now this seemed a surprise to her, and she stopped playing. He would never do such a thing. Not least that they are invaders, but that he fears any son I would bring into this world. Kian nodded. Aye, but it is the truth. They both pondered in the dark silence, surrounded only in the pleasant smell of the room. Then he plays a terrible trick upon them. For peace, he will not keep it. For a trade, he will break the deal. He is dishonest, my father. He does not rule true, nor act righteously. Kia nodded. He has done me wrong and stolen my prized heifer, and I came here by aid of the fair folk. She laughed. Are you sure that you are not one of them? The sweet of tongue and fair face that you are, I thought yourself a specter from Tirnanog. Kian shook his head. No, but with that music, surely you were taught by the fairies. Play on, princess. And so she did, for hours and hours, until her hands gave way, and she stopped, rising. She offered Kian food she kept in clay jars, keeping them cold and fresh, and he found them pleasant, being salmon and lemongrass. She offered him water to drink, for she had no ale, and he drank gladly. At length they spoke, laughing, their banter playful. He told her tales of his people, how the Dagda saw Bruna Boyne through clever wordplay, how Nuwada repelled a host of fairies with his sword, and of the coming war with the Fyrbolg. And she listened, for she had never met a soul save her father and his servants. They knew not the hour or the day, and the time seemed to stand still for them in Valor's high black tower. In time she sang, and they danced together as if before the Beltane fires, and it was then that Kian stole a kiss from her, then she from him. Though she sought to steal another, she stopped. He asked why. She replied with a question of her own. Tell me, who is my betrothed, whom I have been sold to like cattle? Kian smiled. Tis the son of Dien Set. Kian. We were to unite our people. But your father is a liar, and we will not wed. Again she laughed, and for the first time since she played her song, he was taken aback, and realizing she had confused him, she kissed him again. Then let us be wed, if only for tonight. And so they were, as husband and wife. When the servants came at morn, they found the two, and Kian fought for his life. 
Ethnia misled her father's servants to another part of the tower, while taking Key into the nearest window, where the fairywoman Birog waited for him. Olivera burned that I could not spend another night with you, he said, sadness overtaking him. Come with me. Olivera would burn if I did. No, Kian of the Tuatari Danan. My revenge is fulfilling the prophecy. Do you command this fairy woman? Kian shook his head. Only her loyalty, not her soul. Then she should keep an eye on this tower, for if I bear you a son, my father will visit his wrath upon me. She gave him another kiss and pushed him out the window with a laugh. Birog carried Kian off, never to see Ethniu again. Balu's wrath came first to Nawada and Connick, threatening him that one of his folk had broken the treaty and violated his daughter. Having been told the truth already, Nawada revealed he knew Balu's deception, that he had no intention of wedding his daughter, and that this had been a pretense to gaining the Gloss Gavlin. Nawada said that that was enough, that Balur could keep the Gloss Gavlin if he took no revenge, lest he invoke the Sovereign Queen to put Balur on trial. Not even the bitter eye of Balor could withstand their justice, and Balor stomped back to the Northern Isles. In his heart, Kian wept, knowing it was an impossibility, but wishing to see Ethniu once again. Yet the fairy woman Birog did as she was bade, and spent her days in the winds around Tormor, hidden. One day, at the end of the year, near winter solstice, there came a crying out the windows, and then another, and finally a third. Birog turned herself into mist and snuck in, where she beheld the terrible truth. Ethniu had gotten with child, and now bore not one, but three sons for Kian. Balor's servant had arrived, a cold man named Elatha, one of his tribe's chieftains. An honorable man, he had been told to dispose of the children, throwing them in the bay. Though Ethniu fought for her sons, her father's servants held her down by force, and Alatha took the children, using magic to appear at the bay. Birog rushed from the tower, escaping through the window as she saw him cast all three baby boys into the violent, whirling pool below. For all her speed, all her wiles, all her fairy magic, Birog could save but one. The other two were lost in the waters, their spirits carried to Tir Nanag. But Ilatha saw Birog carry the lone boy away, and took no action against her. Calling to her, he said, So be it. My duty was done, and you yours. He turned and made for his home. Kavita stopped his tail there, scratching his prickly chin. The fires of the forge burned, illuminating his crag-like face, a wind entering through the window that blew his features. There was sorrow in it, Blue realized. Gavita told the tale from the heart, which was rare for him. Gavita was a smith, a craftsman who worked with his hands, not his tongue. He was no prize storyteller, like one of the orchids kept in court. He broke the silence. Is that all, uncle? What became of the boy? Gavita nodded, yet said nothing at first. Then, sighing, he continued. Birog brought the boy to his father, who beheld him but once. Yet, in the time since Balor had stomped off in diplomatic defeat, Kian had been punished. Whatever the fruits of his labors in Tormor, he would not be able to keep them. He could see his son once, and only once. 
So Cian held his son, kissed him and gave him a name, and then fostered him with one of the three souls he counted as a friend. The first was his brother, the foolish boy who had lost him the gloss Gaplin. The second was Taltu, Queen of the Fearbulg, whom he had known in his youth. The third was Mananan MacLear, Lord of Tirnanog. Lou swallowed, knowing the answer already. And the boy's name? Givita paused. You already know his name, boy. It's your name, Lou. The crackling silence stood between them, the roar of the forge that lit the small hut. The queen's words made sense now, that he was at the heart of the conflict to come. Does he know about me? My grandfather? Givita shrugged. Peace is held for now between the Tuatha Dé Danann and the Fomorians, though there is much conflict. The Fearbulg and the Fomorians are once again at war. If he knew you existed, he would have turned this island black and poisoned its soil for all of eternity. But only time will tell. Your father has been wise. He has fostered you with everyone you need to give you the skills you need to lead our people to victory. Lou did not understand. And what skills are those? Gavita laughed. <laughs> All of them, my boy. All of them. Lou rose, shaking his head. None of this makes sense. Why would the Fearbulg not just hand me over to prevent their own destruction? Where is this fairy woman? The fairies are not real. I am merely an accident, a boy handed off to a lesser brother to be out of sight and out of mind. My father does not want me. My mother does not want me. I am no prophesied child, as there are no fairies. A warmth filled his eyes then fell like rain. Am I not real, child of Danu? The voice came from nowhere, an ethereal voice that filled the room. A wind picked up, blowing his fop of hair back. Kavita held his cloak tight, grinding his teeth. Looking around, Lou finally caught sight of her, in the corner of the room. She was tall like a willow, with sharp, dark features and eyes that seemed to glow. He could see through her, like a wet sheet, yet her hair and skirt billowed. She looked like no one Lou had ever seen before, for she was of the Ashi, one of those who had come before, who dwelled in the barrows and cairns and towers of old. She stood taller than even his uncle, and her presence was almost unbearable to behold. You are Birog. I am known by that name, and you are Lou, son of Kian whom I took from the bay that day. Do you watch over me? Until I am bade otherwise, I am your guardian. Lou had many questions, but no time to ask them. Gather your things. Your time here is ended. Kavita stood, taking a hammer off the wall. He walked to the window, seeming to understand what she said. What? Why? What's going on, uncle? Kavita moved to the wall, taking a bag off a hook and handing Lou his cloak. It's time, boy. They're coming for us. Who? Who is coming for us? Birog spoke, her bellow rattling his soul. The sons of Iakid, you are now their enemy. Lou shook his head, failing to understand. What? Kavita took his shoulder. It means that Nawada is attempting to take control of the island. We are at war, boy. He threw open the smithy door, only to be met with spear points. 
There stood the sons of Yochid, grinning gladly at Lu, violent intentions on violent faces. Lu glowered back at them, a prisoner of no one. Goddessy is researched, written, and produced by Greg Wright. Additional writing and editing by Sidney Yeager. Music by Scott Buckley. Additional sounds by Mr. Oralization and Tim Kahn. Special thanks to A.P. Thayer, Garrett Wright, no relation, I swear, Steve Wright, full relation, I promise, and Dwayne Torres for amazing practical advice. See you next Monday.